Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another live edition of In With The Old. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and uh, In With The Old is a video podcast dedicated to dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. And I'm joined ever by my faithful co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Uh, Dr. Brian. I don't think we're live, Tim. Oh. At least I'm not. Ref- I, I, I'm refreshing it, and I'm not seeing it. Okay, all right. All right. Oh no, we there are we live. <laughs> Just kidding. <get it. laughs> Let's ah. do it again. Here we go. From the top. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, oh. we promise no perfection here. Only shenanigans week to week. Oh, Sorry, yes. Tim, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome everyone to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. Uh, also, every once in a while, we get our intros right, and the live stream works. And when it doesn't, we just keep going and we smile, because guess what? <laughs> There's grace in the Old Testament as well. So, uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Dr. Brian, how are you doing this fine evening? Oh, I'm doing well, Tim. Sorry for the <laughs> uh, the hiccup. It wasn't refreshing on my side screen, so I thought we weren't live. But I'm doing well. I'm excited for tonight's talk. We're talking about traditional authorship views, uh, and it's been a really fun series. So listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the CounterPoint series, kind of highlighting some of the ways people that study the Bible and share a lot of the same assumptions can still come to kind of different conclusions and why that Mm -hmm. matters. I hope it has drawn you both into the text more and shown you how you can charitably disagree with people and still be in deep relationship with one another and still care for one another. Uh, Our series, Tim, right? Tonight we have episode uh, eight and there are two more episodes in the CounterPoint series after that. We're going to be looking at covenants and then based actually on chat's feedback last week. And so this is my shameless plug for joining us live every Monday night to comment with us and engage in the feedback. We're going to be talking about Noah's Ark for CounterPoint episode 10. So chat, that's all from you. Well done. It's a great idea. So I'm excited for that. But tonight, talking about authorship. So Tim, lead us on in. What do you got for us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as Brian mentioned, you're free to join us live, and we love uh, you discussing things and asking questions in the chat. Tonight, uh, our topic of discussion is the traditional authorship of the books of the Old Testament. And so just to situate us uh, for our CounterPoint series, many of you know, uh, one of us presents first, the other presents second, then we kind of batter each other with some uh, questions and and try to strengthen our position and convince you, ultimately, uh, that one of us is right. Uh, But tonight, I'm going to be going first, and, and on this particular issue, Brian and I are in a substantial agreement about the issue of traditional authorship, and more importantly, how it plays uh, in terms of interpreting the text. So here's, here's uh, my basic position. The first thing that we have to do uh, in understanding traditional authorship and its importance is to ask and answer the question, whose tradition? In other words, what do we mean by traditional authorship of the text? Uh, for most of us, if, if you grow up in church, uh, the people that we were told wrote the books uh, are, are the people who oftentimes bear the names of the books. So Samuel's written by Samuel, or Joshua's written by Joshua. 
Uh, and in some cases, those follow uh, a traditional understanding of uh, Jews of who wrote their books. But there are written traditions. So I'm going to uh, name one up front. And this is probably, I would argue, uh, the most often cited when it comes to uh, traditional authorship. This is from Bava Bathra, which is part of the Babylonian Talmud. So this is built on an oral tradition that then is eventually written down. Uh, and this is in Bava Bafra 14b uh, and 15a, and you can Google this anywhere to find several different places for it. But I'm going to read from it. It says, and who wrote the books of the Bible? So this is the Jewish rabbinic tradition, or at least a Jewish rabbinic tradition. Who wrote the books of the Bible? Moses wrote his own book, i.e. the Torah, and the portion of Balaam in the Torah, and the book of Job. Joshua wrote his own book and eight verses in the Torah, which described the death of Moses. Samuel wrote his own book, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. David wrote the book of Psalms by means of ten elders, and then I'm not going to read the ten elders, but they're listed there in Bava Bathra. Jeremiah wrote his own book, the book of Kings and Lamentations. Hezekiah, and this might be a surprise to some of our listeners, Hezekiah and his colleagues wrote the following. Um, there's a mnemonic device to remember them that I won't name because it, it uses Hebrew letters, but Isaiah, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. And the members of the Great Assembly wrote the following, and there's a mnemonic vice there, which is the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Prophets, Daniel, and the Scroll of Ezra, Esther. Ezra wrote his own book in the genealogy of the Book of Chronicles until his period. So, uh, we have here a very old and ancient Jewish tradition that names a lot of the traditional authors uh, that we often hear cited. Moses wrote the Torah, Joshua wrote the book that bears his name, Samuel wrote the book that bears his name, and so on. But it's also interesting because there are some books, and particularly books of wisdom, uh, that are a, a point of controversy. According to Baba Bathra, we have Hezekiah, who was strongly involved in many of those wisdom uh, pieces of literature. And so, again, that's just one Jewish tradition, but it shows us that there was a strong tradition, especially of things like Mosaic authorship or the authorship of the prophets. Uh, but there's also some disagreement. Uh, there's a, a dissertation published recently, uh, Brian, and uh, this was by a friend of mine, uh, named Dave Quackenboss, uh, wrote it out of Southeastern Seminary, and uh, the dissertation was essentially defending an ancient view of the authorship of Ecclesiastes, and it defends the idea that Hezekiah wrote it. But it's fascinating because in, in say, that particular book, uh, we have a Christian tradition that ascribes the authorship to Solomon, uh, but of course they were aware that there were other theories of that as well. So I want to provide some evidence in uh, uh, in the text itself of traditional authorship, because my fundamental premise is, first, we have to understand what tradition we're talking about, but second, we have to understand what the Bible claims for itself, because that's key. We never want to claim something the Bible does not actually claim for itself. And here are some indications that some of these traditional authors are very possible. First uh, Kings chapter 4, 29 through 32, this is uh, a rather famous text where it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, uh, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. 
Okay, well, if there's 3,000 Proverbs and there's songs 1,005, well, then it stands to reason that some of those ended up in the book of Proverbs, uh, many of them in the book of Proverbs, and also very possible that you have Song of Songs or Ecclesiastes or other poetic and wisdom works that were preserved. Uh, so there's at least a case that Solomon wrote things, and, and if they were preserved in Scripture, then maybe some of those uh, books are written by Solomon. Next verse, and this is a little bit more general, but this is from Exodus 17, 14. So the Torah, right, the books of Moses. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. Uh, so again, the emphasis is on Moses writing it, but also so that it will be remembered, so that it will be preserved and kept. Uh, and so we have textual indications that the tradi traditional authors were involved in the process of writing, and then we can infer uh, that those writings were preserved, and in some cases preserved in Scripture. So uh, this raises an important question, because in some cases you have books that do claim a very particular author, and this is true uh, in the prophetic literature in particular, where the authors are often named, uh, and it's because of the, the naming of the author that they bear an authority. Isaiah speaks for God, thus says Yahweh, as Isaiah was commissioned by God to say to the people, or so on and so forth with the prophets. Uh, but here's again where we need to come back to an understanding that many of the Old Testament documents are anonymous. In other words, the author does not take the time to name himself, and because of that, we have to ask the question, well, why? And for those of us who believe in inspiration, we could ask that question, why do we believe that God did not see fit or see it as of importance to inspire the authors to write that name? Uh, and I think there are some interesting questions, answers to that, which I'll come back to at the end. But I want to plant that for right now uh, in, in terms of just understanding uh, that the, the documents themselves don't claim to have a particular author. Uh, now, as, as we come back to this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up my notes here, so if you'll just give me one moment. Uh, as, as we think about the evidence that's internal, I want to use Psalms as a test case, the Book of Psalms. Uh, the Book of Psalms is uh, a compilation of 150 individual hymns, and there are many different authors that are mentioned, uh, and you know some of them. Of course, David is, uh, is the one who's ascribed most of the Psalms, or at least they're said to be of David, La David. Uh, but there are other authors that are named as well. There are songs of Asaph, there are songs of Korah, there are many other psalms that are mentioned. Even Moses is mentioned as an author of Psalm 90 uh, as, a, as an example. But when we think of this, here's what we know of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms had many different authors, but it was eventually compiled and preserved in the form that we have it today. Uh, it was compiled apparently over time. There are five different books within the book of Psalms as a whole. And so there were various collections that were eventually compiled into the collection that we have now. Uh, and many of those Psalms are anonymous. We don't have the author's names and none are given. So here's the question that we can ask ourselves. Is it possible that other books of the Bible were compiled over time in a similar process? And I think the answer to that is at least that there are is a possibility that, say, an editor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, maybe a scribe like Ezra, took things that existed and brought them together uh, into their final form. And it, as odd as that might seem to us, I don't think we have to be scared of that, as though somehow that causes us to say that the books aren't credible or truthful or inspired or inerrant. I don't think any of those things are true. Uh, 
But here's what I think we can uh, infer from this, is that when it comes to the forms of the, the books that we have now, I think that much of those materials, in fact, I would say the vast majority of the materials of those books were written uh, by the people who were concurrent with the time of the events that they describe. In other words, I don't think we have to posit some kind of late editor as a primary author. I think that people who are very close to the events of the biblical text wrote them down and preserved them. But I, I think it is very likely that in some cases we see someone who comes along and puts them into a final form under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then those books are passed down to us uh, in that final form. So I, I want to end uh, by a couple of considerations. The first is, why is it that many modern scholars challenge the traditional interpretations of the biblical text? Well, in some cases, modern scholarship will point out uh, stylistic changes or, or vocabulary issues that they believe were not possible uh, in kind of the time frame of the events that were described in those writings. So for instance, they might say there's some kind of uh, later Greek word that shows up in, in the book of Daniel, or there might be some uh, loan words that show up in, say, First uh, and Second Samuel or First and Second Kings that weren't possible at the time of those events. Uh, but here's what I would say to that. Those arguments are often based a lot on a lot of assumptions that really can't be proven, and not just even proven, but in many cases can't be known. Uh, so I don't think we have any reason to posit that there was a, a big time difference between the time of the events and the time that those events were recorded. Uh, and when it comes to uh, looking at the biblical text, when we see the biblical texts themselves, they read not as, as the kind of literature that, that is written well after the period of, say, hundreds or, or multiple hundreds of years. They read as though they, they're written by the hands of eyewitnesses who were there. And so when you have that kind of feeling of the text, when you have that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, firsthand freshness that many of these texts have, I think when we look at the traditional authorship, we can look and say, well, unless there's a better candidate, we really have no reason to say uh, that, these, that these aren't valid. Uh, so, for instance, when it comes to the Torah, right, we know that there are documents that, that precede Moses. We've talked about those in the past. For instance, we see that in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, the scroll of Adam. We know that he likely used pre-existing material, but I don't think we have any reason to doubt that the events that are described in the Torah were actually written down basically contempor contemporaneously with the events as they actually happen. But here's, here's where I land before I kick it over to Brian. We don't have to have a, dogma, a dogmatic opinion about original authorship, and we don't have to have it. Why? Because the Bible itself doesn't make it a point of conflict. You know, at the end of the day, uh, there's no way to prove who wrote these documents. Uh, we can look to the New Testament, and we can certainly say, okay, well, the New Testament affirms Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, or Isaianic authorship of Isaiah, or so on and so forth. And of course, I think that's important, and I think the New Testament is inspired uh, as a recording of, of what Jesus taught and what the disciples themselves believed. I think we can trust those. But in many other cases, say with the book of Samuel, there is no indication in the New Testament that Samuel wrote the book of Samuel. Is it a very likely possibility? Well, yeah, I think it is very possible. 
But when it comes to events that, say, occurred after Samuel's death, or when it comes to the book of Joshua, where Joshua isn't named as the author in either the Old or New Testament, I don't think we have to have a dogmatic opinion about it. Uh, And here's how I kind of look at it. In some cases, considering the traditional author, it might be helpful uh, in terms of an exercise for our interpretation. In other words, we might say, okay, well, if Samuel wrote this or if Joshua wrote this, how does that help us as readers understand what he might have been saying? Uh, But I, I don't think it's necessary. It might be helpful for meditation in terms of seeing it through a particular set of eyes, uh, but I don't think it has to be determinative in our interpretation. Uh, So again, coming back to that final question, why is it that God uh, saw fit to, to leave many of these texts as anonymous? Well, I think at least one possible answer is this. God never wanted us to see the Bible as an idol that we worship in its own right. And one of the themes that Brian and I talk about often is, is this need to come back to loving God and loving, loving neighbor. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible reveals God to us. It points us to Him. Uh, but the Bible itself is not something that we hold as, uh, as sacred in the sense of something worthy of worship. Uh, and I think as in terms of reading it and understanding it, interpreting it, uh, we have to understand there are questions about it that we just don't have answered. Uh, we don't have a tradition, as other faiths do, where God gave us uh, a book in its final form from heaven. We read a book that went through a very human process, even as that process was ultimately uh, driven and maintained and in one sense superintended by God so that we have the Bible uh, as, as we do. But of course, some of those mysteries remain, and it's okay living in that kind of gray space. So there's a lot there, Brian. That's uh, my basic position, and uh, I'm glad now to kick it over to you. All right. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Really good points and a good reflective question for us to consider. So as Tim already intimated, uh, a good portion of this counterpoint is not actually a disagreement and the basic principle of the significance of traditional authorship. We'll actually probably be spending more time kind of getting into the weeds of what are some of the implications and how do we view traditional authorship in various books. So I want to start by saying I agree with Tim. Authorship is an element of biblical studies, but it's not one, and this may be surprising to you listeners, but it's not one as critical as we often make it out to be, or at least as as critical as I often heard it told to me growing up in the church. There are many modern theories for authorship. For example, the documentary hypothesis, alternatively known as the JEDP theory. Um, And while I'm not convinced by those, I'm also not convinced for the case of the Pentateuch, you have to hold to traditional mosaic authorship for inspiration to be affected. I think our view of inspiration can and will cover editing or redacting, depending on which term you prefer. I view traditional authorship then as what we can call a third order theological idea. It's an idea that maybe has some weight or significance, but should not divide and should not separate. So I'm in basic agreement with Tim on that point. What I wanted to spend my time talking about then is three specific areas in which I look at authorship and go, all right, here's something that is worthy of reflection or worthy of consideration and might be of benefit to you listeners. Uh, First, and just briefly, we actually already have an episode on mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. So that was in season two. That's episode nine. Uh, I refer you back to that because my view is still basically what we said there. If you go to Wikipedia, of course, the fount of all information in the modern world, (laughs) 
you will see and you will hear in various discussions that something called the documentary hypothesis or the, the four sources, the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Deuteronomist, and the priestly source uh, are the base documents from which the Pentateuch was assembled. I do not think that is a convincing idea. I don't have a theological objection to it, but I have read criticism from both sides of the theological spectrum, both liberal and conservative. I think the theory makes some very poor assumptions about how we write. Uh, and so I don't find it convincing at the end of the day. I don't see another alternative theory aside from mosaic authorship or primary authorship out there. Uh, and so as you are out there dialoguing about the Bible, you might hear this out there. And I, I refer you back to what we said in episode uh, season two, episode nine, to talk about our views on that. Now, one area I think authorship does matter somewhat significantly, and Tim touched on it briefly, is in the prophets, or what we call the writing prophets. Because uh, in Old Testament studies, you have the former prophets, and by that, we actually mean what we typically call the historical books in the English Bible. But the writing prophets, starting with Isaiah and going on, I think have to be tied much more closely to that historical figure than other books for this very reason. Judaism eventually is going to adopt what we call pseudepigrapha, that is, writing in the name of someone else. So the book of Enoch, no one thinks it's written by Enoch, uh, right? You have, and this goes into the New Testament, the Gospel of Thomas is not written by Thomas. The Gospel of Judas is not written by Judas. This is called pseudepigrapha, where an author adopts the personality of a historical figure to lead, lend credence or weight to their argument. Judaism has that tradition in the uh, Second Temple period, the time between the Testaments. But importantly, I don't think we see evidence of that while the prophetic line still exists. Uh, to back that up, by the way, you can go to the book of Maccabees. We talked about this with Dr. Wilder on our guest episode. Uh, these books talk about the historical period between the two Testaments. In that book, the Maccabeans retake Jerusalem, and they don't know what to do with the defiled altar. And so it says they put everything aside until a prophet would arise to tell them what to do with it. That tells us there is no prophet at that time. So if there's no, if the line of prophets are still there, I think they have to be connected to their books, in part because there are stories that necessitate that. My big dissertation and one of my main interests is the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2.2, the prophet is told to write down the vision that he's going to see. Uh, in fact, he's told to write it down so plainly that even someone running will be able to make sense of it. That is an important point. God is giving a command to a prophet and assuming the prophet can actually carry that out. So this tells me a couple things. First, the writing down of prophecies and visions that these gentlemen see is necessary to prove that they were true prophets. Right, The test for prophethood laid out in Deuteronomy is, did the word of the Lord come true? Well, the only way to test it right, is to actually write it down to compare. Otherwise, you get this, oh, no, 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 guys, trust me. I said that. Uh, right? You, you'd have this, my memory versus your memory. We write them down to verify if you're a true prophet or not, because true prophets are not something to take lightly, and false prophets are to be killed. Uh, Johannes Lindblom, actually, in his study on uh, prophecy in ancient Israel, had this beautiful description of a prophet. And he says, the prophets were conscious of the fact that they were called and sent to proclaim divine messages. Their task was to utter oracles and to bring to their people an urgent communication from God about sin and repentance 
judgment, and salvation. The only way to bring the message of God to the people, because a prophet can't be everywhere at once, is in some way to write it down and to preserve it so that it can be disseminated. Now, let's not push this too far. This insistence on the prophet being connected to their work does not exclude, for example, scribes or copyists being present. We even know in the Bible in Jeremiah 36, 4 and the following verses that he uses a scribe, Baruch ben Neriah, to write down what God tell, told him. There's no problem in that. It's not like Jeremiah is disconnected. So I'm not insisting that the books we have today are exactly pinned to paper what the prophet said, but I'm saying the prophet had to in some way be around, be alive to authorize. Yes, this is a faithful recording of what God revealed to me. Uh, again, Lindblom points out it's an incontestable fact that the prophets themselves sometimes wrote down their oracles because they were responsible for them. I think the writing down of prophecy is also required if we're to reject a theological idea called Vaticanium Ecaventu. And no, I'm not trying to summon a demon live on this podcast. Uh, that's Latin for uh, after the fact, right? We're talking about Vaticanium Ecaventu is when you say, oh, I prophesied that this event would happen in history in the future, but it actually is in your past, right? And you're not prophesying at all. You're passing off history as prophecy. Most evangelical scholars like Tim and I would reject that as a rightful category. I do it on the grounds of that would seem to be deceitful, and God is not deceitful, therefore that is not permissible. Um, so that also then requires the prophets to somehow be connected to their work. So uh, I think in the prophets, it is much more important that we hold to traditional authorship. Now, here's my oddball. There are two books where I look at traditional authorship, but actually uh, Christian traditional authorship. I'm going to agree with Baba Bathra here. I do not think that Solomon wrote either Song of Songs or Ecclesiastes. I don't think he wrote either one of them. Let me briefly summarize why. First, Song of Songs. And it, the name of the book is Song of Songs. Your Bible might have Song of Solomon. Uh, that's incorrect and hides and obscures the point of the book. Uh, Hebrew does not have a form of the superlative grammatically, the greatest, the best. Instead, it will repeat the noun, singular to plural. So Song of Songs is the Hebrew way of saying the greatest song. When we call it Song of Solomon, we obscure that. We also hide the fact that of Solomon is an ambiguous phrase. It's ambiguous in English as it is in Hebrew. The, the word in, in the inscription uh, is uh, Lish Lama, to Solomon. Now, the, the inseparable preposition, the Lamed, is being attached to his name. That can mean many different things in Hebrew. It could be written by him. It could be written about him, written to him, written for him, written in his honor, and on and on. It does not necessarily imply that he is the author, and in fact, I don't think he is. Uh, for within the text, there are two instances where Solomon is a character, and he's not saying I. So in both Song of Songs 3, 6 through 11, and 8, 11, and 12, Solomon is a character who is not the husband who is speaking in the rest of the book, and not the author. Beyond that, I actually think Solomon is the foil of Song of Songs. I don't think he's the husband. In fact, I think he's supposed to be the antithesis of what the husband is about. If you look at and read the book, and I get it, it's, a, it's an odd book. It's a book about sex and marriage. For some reason, we're uncomfortable reading that. 
And I kind of look at a culture that struggles with those ideas and go, gee, I wish God had given us a book about it. Oh, wait, he did. And we don't read it. Okay. Anyway, off my uh, soapbox there. (laughs) But if you go read the book, go to chapter three and in verses six through 11, Solomon's talked about preparing for his wedding day. And you get this beautiful description of the throne, of the mighty men that are carrying it, of the incense, of the perfume. And that's the point. In the very next chapter, the husband is going to reflect on his upcoming nuptials. Solomon focused on the grandeur of the preparations, all the things that are there. And chapter four, none of that is mentioned. Instead, what does the husband focus on? He focuses on his bride. All the descriptions are about her. I think that's an intentional parallel. Solomon is focused on the trappings of marriage, but not the marriage itself, not the other image bearer in this relationship. The husband is focused on that. I think they're supposed to be a compare and contrast. Solomon is not a positive example, which I also want to point out there. Wouldn't it be unusual, to put it quite mildly, for Solomon to be the person to lecture us about marital love and fidelity? For crying out loud, he is in the hall of shame for sex addiction, right? He is up there. So why would we have a book about it? If you're going to claim, I will say this, if you're going to claim Solomonic authorship, I think you have to claim that this was written about his first bride. Anything past that, this book begins feeling very disingenuous because you know he doesn't actually feel these ways or he feels these ways about many people, undercutting some of the central themes of this book. So I don't think Solomon wrote the book. I think he is actually being used as what not to do in a marital relationship with fits with the historical telling of his life. To Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon's writings are in the book, but I don't think he is the narrator giving us his writings. I think what we have is someone compiling it. I'm open to Hezekiah with Baba Bathra, as they claim. I'm not going to actually make that claim. I'm going to say it's an unknown author. Um, but this book appears to me to be a reflection of the, on the, upon the writings of Solomon, but it's being framed by another hand. The preacher, uh, alternatively known as Kohelet, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew, does seem to be Solomon. So you see phrases like, I, the preacher, ruled in Jerusalem. I was wiser than all those that came before. There is something a little odd about that. There have been precisely two kings that have come before. That's not a terribly great boast that you're the wisest of, of only three kings that have come so far, but be that as it may. Um, and yet, so we, I, I think we have those are clearly Solomon's writings, but then we have other writings of an individual that does not appear to be Solomon and appears to have been shaped and delivered to us by this editor or narrator. Why? Well, many times throughout the book, the speaker laments that they see injustice, but are unable to fix it. Three, six, four, one, those are two instances. I think it happens about five times. Solomon's the king. Why is there something he sees that can't be stopped? And in those passages, by the way, listeners, you can go and read them. He's not reflecting on just like the fickle fate of life. Like there are things right beyond the power of even a king. But he's talking about person to person social injustice. That is absolutely something he would have purview over. So if this is Solomon talking, why is he not acting? You have, and Tim brought this up earlier, sometimes we go, hey, there's a word that doesn't belong here. There's an Aramaic and a Persian word in this book, or loan words rather. It's the word park in 2.5 and the word edict in 8.11. These might indicate, and I share Tim's caution here, they might indicate a late date for the book, but I'm always somewhat skeptical of how early we know words exist in a vocabulary. 
But that is an argument I want to put out there. Lastly, or second to lastly, the end of the book and the beginning of the book both indicate that there's someone else speaking. Ecclesiastes 12.9 says, Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. That's not the preacher talking. That's someone talking about the preacher. This is why I think the book is actually written by a Solomon historian, giving us the content of his life. And here's the key point. Ecclesiastes ends on, right, obey God, for that is the duty of every person. That's a fairly positive message. That is out of step with the conclusion of Solomon's life. At 1 Kings 11, we see the end of Solomon's reign and Solomon's life, and there is no redemption, there is no coming back. This book seems to be written by an old man reflecting on his whole life, and so this would be an out-of-step conclusion. It does not appear Solomon ever really redeems himself or comes back to a positive relationship with God, and so I don't think the conclusion is written by him. Instead, I think this is someone drawing the conclusion from Solomon's life, what he, even with his wisdom, failed to see because he was entrapped by his sin. So I do take it, uh, just to say it one more time, that this book uh, is a conclusion of a later author drawn from Solomon's life. So briefly, we could talk about uh, mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, Tim, if you want. Uh, I am going to hold that authorship for the prophets is a bit more important, and I think Solomon did not write the two books we generally ascribe to him. Beyond those, this is a third-tier issue, as we said. I think inspiration is fine, even if we reject traditional authorship. So that is where we're going to go. Uh, Listeners, this is a bit of a more wide open discussion. Uh, I would love for those in the chat right now, feel free. If there's a book specifically you have questions about or you've heard a theory, throw it on in there. We're happy to kind of uh, talk. I know I have some questions I have for Tim, but we're happy to take this wherever you'd like to go. But Tim, let me uh, bring you back on in um, and let's get to it. I want to read your friend's dissertation on a Hezekiah defense for uh, Ecclesiastes, because I would be very open to that, um, and I'd love to see what his argument is. Yeah, and I was I was thumbing through it earlier today, Brian, in uh, preparation for this. So uh, really, I kind of read the portion where he laid out some of the traditional stances, and uh, and he said, you know, essentially there was a patristic tradition all the way down through the some Reformation of, the traditional stances of Solomonic of, uh, authorship. Uh, but it mm-hmm. kind of seemed like he was going to lean into Bava Bathra as well, um, and, and citing some of the things that you did in terms of uh, some of the challenges of interpreting it through a Solomonic lens. So I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, what what I want to uh, kind of just discuss for a moment is, uh, I, I imagine, Brian, you grew up in a tradition like I did, where the idea of not ascribing, say, Samuel as the author of Samuel, or Joshua as the author of Joshua and Judges, um, or at least Joshua. Like it was almost paramount to saying, well, if you don't ascribe to traditional authorship, that must mean you don't take the claims of the text seriously. And uh, and that's where I think for me there was something freeing to say, okay, well, again, in certain cases, like in the Torah or in the prophets, you have uh, attributions, you have descriptions mm-hmm. of Moses writing and, and putting this, you know, into into a, a preservation status, or you have the claims of the, the prophets. But it's freeing to know that the Bible actually does not at times make the claims that we make for it. 
Um, and and for me, and that's why I mentioned uh, Dave Quackenboss and his work too. Uh, when it comes to understanding the text and interpreting it, this isn't an issue of like, oh, well, if someone rejects this traditional authorship, that must mean that they're somehow liberal or you, they can't be trusted or whatever, you know, kind of label you want to put on them. No, I think this is just a sign that we're trying to think seriously about the evidence that we see in front of us and uh, to know that even within both the Jewish and Christian tradition, there's legitimate disagreement about this among people who see the text as incredibly important, as absolutely voracious, as well as uh, inspired by God. So I I just kind of want to throw that out there, uh, because these are the kind of things that if you read modern objections to the Bible, they'll come up over and over and over again. And so for our listeners, we just want to equip you, and and to me, I I almost think inoculate you uh, to some of these arguments, and just to make you aware. this isn't something that you have to, uh, you know, sign in blood and, and uh, kind of walk in blind faith. We can think through these issues well uh, and, and understand that, hey, in many cases, some of our traditions go beyond the text of the, the Bible itself. Yeah, no, excellent points, Tim. And uh, yes, you're right. I mean, I grew up, um, I don't know if it was ever said explicitly, right? But the implication was definitely like, oh, only you know, X, Y, or Z camps would reject traditional authorship. Right. Um, and so one of, the, one of the key things that's been there for me is, is what you said. I want to claim for the Bible what it claims for itself, because I do take the Bible very seriously. And because of that, uh, I actually saw something in the New Testament that has powerfully shaped me, and that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees mm-hmm. took the Word of God seriously, but in their zeal for doing that, they began pushing beyond it and began hedging in certain ways. Mm-hmm. That caused problems uh, and how they interpreted the word of God. It caused them to miss the revelation of God. Mm-hmm. And, and that has always been something in the back of my mind. I don't want to push beyond what the Bible claims for itself because that might blind me to something the Bible is trying to say to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want the New Testament. Christ talks about freedom. Uh, he talks about his, his yoke being easy, his burden being light. and. I've found as I've gone deeper and deeper in my studies and closer to God, there is more freedom as we start to understand what truth is and freedom to ask difficult questions, freedom to go, where does the evidence take me? Because it's my conviction that God is truth. And so all truth belongs to him. It's not wrong to pursue answers. And so I want to be able to do that. Uh, And so listeners, I hope I hope that's one of the things you get from this podcast is where people who take the Bible seriously and are okay asking these questions. Um, One thing I'll also put out there is anytime you get into a debate and Tim has been fantastic when he talked about other, other views and modern views that maybe push beyond traditional authorship ideas. Don't ascribe negative reasons for those choices uh, unless you have good reason to do that. Because it's very easy to go, oh, they do that because they doubt the word of God. Oh, they do that because they want to insert X, Y, or Z. I'm not saying be naive. There are people that probably want those things. But there are many scholars who are simply going, no, I want to follow the evidence where it takes me. Um, So be charitable in our assumptions towards others, just as we would hope people would be charitable uh, towards us as we are also uh, making choices. Tim, um, I actually have a question for you before. 
or more a request before we get like too deep in. Uh, we've yeah. mentioned Baba Bathra a couple times. You and I know what Baba Baba Bathra. Oh my goodness! Try saying that five times fast. Um, <laughs> could you just give a quick thirty second? What is Bava Bathra for those who have not heard of this before? Yeah, so Bava Bathra is a tractate in the Babylonian Talmud, and so the Talmud is essentially the written version of an oral tradition uh, within Rabbinic Judaism, and the uh, the tractates in the Talmud talk about many different things, and so they talk about some matters that are very practical, some that are more theoretical, uh, but essentially the the rabbis had an oral tradition that they eventually put down into words, uh, and then we get to read that and basically kind of look back in time, uh, kind of like looking uh, through a telescope into space. Uh, you can kind of see back through time in terms of the understandings of the rabbis it, with reference to particular uh, traditions or beliefs. Uh, so a lot of, uh, say, what we read about even Judaism in the time of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms yep. of uh, Shimei and Hillel and the different debates that they had, these things are preserved for us uh, in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, and it's basically the oral tradition that's passed down uh, and eventually written down in rabbinic Judaism. So uh, a lot of times, that's the 30-second version, but just to add to it, a lot of times whenever uh, people talk about well, uh, rabbinic Judaism believes this. They're quoting from these these different traditions, and uh, yeah. So I think I think that suffices for right now. Uh, but it, it just helps us to look at what the rabbinic traditions were, uh, and gives us at least a starting point for the schools of Judaism that gave rise to those texts. Yes, excellent. Thank you. I just thought that would be worth uh, filling out a little bit more. So thanks for that. Yeah. Well, Brian, let me let me ask you about this because I I affirm what you just said in, in terms of when we when we are engaging with people who maybe have uh, more of a, uh, a skeptical view of uh, traditional authorship or even traditional dating. Something you mentioned is the uh, understanding of ex eventu prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's the idea that among people who are not people of faith. Uh, one of the distinctions that we might bring to the text is we assume that this is possible, whereas others might look at, so, say, the— Oh, go ahead. Yeah, whereas others might look at the text and say, well, it's impossible for Daniel to have prophesied this, or for Zechariah mm -hmm. to have prophesied this, uh, or Isaiah to have prophesied this. Uh, I think Isaiah is actually a little bit more difficult, because no matter what view you take of Isaiah, uh, there are still uh, prophecies you have to contend with. But in yeah, any we should case, talk about Isaiah later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, when we, when we think about this, how do, we, how do you think we try to engage uh, maybe a skeptical world, even, in, even in, with very different starting points? You know, if we believe in the supernatural, but if someone's coming from a starting point where they don't, how do you think we, we engage this question of authorship with them in a way that's not intellect, intellectually dishonest ourselves, uh, but, is, but is open to uh, some of the insights that, that modern scholarship might bring without, you know, uh, sucking in the poison, so to speak? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And what you said is uh, at the core uh, of the discussion here is that there are different starting points and different assumptions. So right. uh, if you are a naturalist and there are 
naturalistic, atheistic, biblical scholars, right? You don't have to be a believer in God to go, hey, this is an interesting book. This has been formative for culture across time. It seems to be well-written. I want to study it. Um, So you have some individuals, right, that come and go, all right, if I don't believe in supernatural events, if I don't hold to there's a God or prophecy is a legitimate thing, what do you do with any of the prophets, right? It has to be ek eventu. It has to be Mm -hmm. after the fact. Um, and, and so that's just an assumption that makes sense, right? This thing can't exist, therefore it has to be this. So what do you do with that? Um, I, I think it depends on a couple things, and this is how I approach any discussion. It's going to depend, one, what's the context of our discussion? So Tim, you and I, if we're at an academic conference, let's say SBL, ETS, there are different things we're going to talk about there because we are going to we're scholars all in the room, so we're going to push hard on certain areas, certain assumptions, certain theories. Um, if we're not in that setting, that changes how we approach it, I think. Mm-hmm. It will depend on what relationship I have with the individual. Uh, because my basic idea is you have the assumption that prophecy can exist. I have the assumption someone came back from the dead. <laughs> Therefore, uh, my bar for miracles has to be high. I was just actually talking with my pastor <laughs> about this on Sunday. Um, that just seems to make sense, right? Like, if someone's come back from the dead, there are very few things I'm going to say that are more <laughs> improbable and more supernatural than that. Like, mm-hmm. legitimate resurrection, not just we thought he was dead and he came back. Like, legitimate resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have different starting points. That tells me I'm we're at loggerheads. I'm not going to be able to argue through an assumption. Not usually. So I'm going to instead start pushing back to go, what is our, what is the basis underneath this assumption? Um, this is probably something that I'm going to have to argue from natural theology. I go, look, I think there's good reason to suspect a divine cause for the universe. I have good reason to think that this being is personal, is good, is connected to the world, is outside of time, and therefore can talk about events that have not yet happened. All these things lead me to go, this is possible. I would then also probably point out incredulity is a poor argument for something not being there. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that uh, Ekevintu, uh believers would say, oh, it just can't happen, therefore it doesn't. I'm saying that that's the kind of primary assumption usually. And then they will find linguistic or uh, sometimes they'll try to you know find certain dating evidence for it. Um, mm-hmm. So my – that was – sorry, this is a long-winded answer. I'd push back towards what are our assumptions. Uh, Mm. Simply saying that this can't happen is not a terribly good argument. I'd want to see some more evidence. And then let's talk about that. Uh, And at the end of the day, depending on, again, on my relationship with them, I don't need, and I don't think it's the most important thing in the world for them to believe that prophecy exists because that's not the thing that saves them or me. So Mm -hmm. I will also want to fit it into my hierarchy of theological triage, right? What is more important? to be talking about here. So that's my mm-hmm. kind of more long-winded answer, Tim. As a pastor, I'm sure you probably actually better than I uh, can answer this question. What, how would you approach it? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's it's very much relationship-dependent. Uh, so if you have a good relationship... Uh, oh, no, the person... Stalins come back. Oh, Tim, man. speak to me, man. Oh, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Can you hear me? All right, there me? you go. He's back. He's All back. Right. All right, go for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you, Brian, that it's it's very much relationship dependent, uh, and so I would I would try to understand where that person's coming from, 
Uh, and oftentimes, depending upon their level of familiarity with the biblical text, uh, they may be parroting something that someone else said. If so, I, I kind of want to get to the bottom of that. Uh, it might be, uh, you know, it, it might be masking in some cases uh, other objections. And, and so I, I very much want we to get to know the person. We were even talking about as we started, like we don't know why occasionally Tim drops out. But <laughs> I'm just filling the space. All right, he's back. Sorry, Tim. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and, and the last thing I'll say is this. I, I do the best I can to, again, try to get ahead of some of these things with people because uh, the, the first person who engages with these thoughts and questions oftentimes is the one uh, who is going to seem the most reasonable. And, and that's not to say that the arguments are stronger because of that, but if a mm. pastor is willing to say, hey, there are these theories out here, so when you interact with them, don't be scared or, or somehow uh, chased off by them. Don't let them disturb your faith. Let's think about them up front so that when you engage with them, you have reasonable answers and conclusions that you can bring to that discussion. So again, I, I like that term inoculation uh, because I, I think sometimes people freak out when they hear theories of authorship or they say, oh, well, you know, and a lot of times, especially kind of internet level stuff, it's kind of bombastic. Well, so-and-so didn't write this or, you know, uh, and, and a lot of it is just, hey, when you talk to people about it, you let them know and you let them know, hey, it's okay that we don't have a definitive answer for these things. Uh, honestly, 99.9% of the time, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And, uh, and you can move on and you can read what the text says rather than worrying about whether or not the text is somehow truthful. Yeah, great point. So I want to, uh, Tim, if it's okay, take a question that just showed up in chat because it's a really good question by uh, Arturo. Um, yeah. And I have an answer and I want to hear what your answer might be. Um, what are some arguments people make to claim that not taking traditional authorship is denying or challenging biblical inspiration? So that's a, a very good question to my mind. And there's the more informed way and then there's the more colloquial way. So the informed way, and I mentioned this last week when we were talking about inerrancy and creationism, um, the Chicago Statement was written with the New Testament in mind. The Chicago Statement, as I read it, and I might be misreading it, so Tim, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I do not think the Chicago Statement allows for editing of an inspired book and that editing to be inspired. However, with the Old Testament, we have texts for which we can clearly tell it is edited or has been edited. For example, in Genesis, uh, a location, I think in Genesis 16 off the top of my head, is listed as Dan. It's called Dan because it's named for the tribe of Dan, which won't exist for another 40 chapters or 30 chapters, right? Um, so that seems to clearly be a location update uh, of a naming convention. You have a couple of those. You have the book of Psalms has clearly been compiled. They weren't written in that form because we have alternative collections as well. Um, so strictly speaking, you could say any of these things makes you an inerrantist or uh, means you can't be an inerrantist because the Chicago statement doesn't cover it. This is why I kind of intimated there are some conversations. There's going to be a conversation at ETS in a couple of weeks, which is the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, I believe there's a whole session devoted to Old Testament inerrancy. And it's asking some of these questions because it we're going, hey, we all believe it, but we need to define this a little better because our current definitions do not account for it. So that's the more formal way you might say, well, can you actually claim inerrancy? More colloquially, what I will hear people say is the guy's name's on the book, so it has to be them. Um, 
one of the stronger arguments I will hear is you have to say Moses is the author of the Pentateuch because Jesus says it's the author, right? Mm. Jesus talks about when he's summarizing the Tanakh, Moses and the prophets or Moses, the prophets and the writings. To that, I would point out that the collection of books became known as the collection of Moses because it is the tradition. It's maybe pushing it to say Jesus is affirming Mosaic authorship. He is using the name of the collection. If I was going to play devil's advocate here, I would say that that's all he has to affirm there. Uh, and therefore, pushing a Mosaic authorship might be too much. But I think that is probably the strongest argument you can make for it. Uh, but those are the things that come to my mind. Tim, what are some of the ways you've heard it argued? Yeah, and uh, and I'm just looking through the Chicago statement as as you were answering, Brian. I, I think uh, for me, I'm not aware of anything in there that would deny at least some kind of editorial hand, as long as we as we understand that the same process of of uh, coming through uh, as a redactor is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it talks about autographs, uh, which again, yeah. I'm, I have no problem talking about autographs in one sense, but in another. Uh, I think when we look at, say, the book of the Psalms, uh, okay, it's obvious that this is a compilation of material. So There when is we no think autograph of, of Psalms, right? Right, right. It's like, what do we mean when we say autograph? Do we mean, and this is what I, I, would, I would argue myself is, autograph in that case meant the final form as it was collected. Okay, so is mm -hmm. there eventually an autograph? Yes, but was it the original writing of those psalms by the author with that pen in their hand? I think the answer to that is no. Okay, so we just have to be careful, and this is why we said the Chicago Statement and even like the word autograph assumes more of a New Testament context where you have, say, the autograph to the book of Romans or the autograph of the book of Matthew, right? Yeah. It doesn't fit as well when we think of a text that we know was a compilation of many other things. Um, and just with, real quick, uh, listeners, yeah. when Tim is saying autograph, he's not talking about like a signed baseball. <laughs> autograph in biblical studies means the very first document that the author put pen to paper on. Everything after that is a copy. So autograph is that original. Sorry, Tim, right. back to you. And I actually think even within New Testament uh, authorship, there are some uh, at least things that we have to iron out. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. did Paul use uh, pre-existing material of his own uh, in, say, the writing of Ephesians or Colossians? Uh, well, I think the answer to that is almost absolutely yes. Why? Because there's verbatim repetitions of those, which means that maybe he had already articulated those things, kind of like uh, in our modern parlance, if you have maybe a paragraph written of one thing and you kind of copy and paste it into another. Uh, but I think most uh, most evangelical scholars would say the moment the, the, the final product was written, that becomes the inspired autograph in terms of the definition of, say, the Chicago Statement. Some of that's a little bit weedy, uh, as in in the weeds. Uh, but here's, here's what I would say in terms of uh, tradi traditional authorship and inerrancy. Um, on the one hand, I again think most evangelicals, if you press them to it, would say, well, of course, I agree with the fundamental premise that we don't want to make any claims that the Bible doesn't make for itself. Uh, but here's, here's at least part of the reason why people push for, uh, say, the authorship of Samuel in the book of Samuel or Joshua or, or, or whatever it might be. The argument is, in one sense, analogous to the inspiration of New Testament books, and one of the things that is important in New Testament inspiration arguments is the authority of the person who wrote the text. 
Okay, mm-hmm. so why do we accept the Gospels as, as authoritative? Well, because the Gospels were written by people either who were apostles themselves or were close associates of the apostles. So there's a, a direct tie of the authority of the document to the proximity of the author to Jesus himself. So it's a little bit difficult if we say, well, the authorship of these books is totally anonymous. Uh, in some cases, it might give us a little more comfort to say, well, this is on Samuel's authority, or this is on Joshua's authority, as opposed to, right. well, we really don't have an idea of who wrote this, uh, but our tradition tells us that it's inspired by God, uh, and therefore we accept it. Uh, and that's where, again, uh, I, I don't think that that our faith rests on whether or not the you know the author had some kind of big name. I think we really can look at this and say, well, God uh, was just as active in the process of the preservation of Scripture in one sense as He was in the process of the authorship of Scripture. And so, to me, yeah. it's it's more analogous to the Book of Hebrews, right in the New Testament. Uh, I think it was Origen who who famously said, right, who wrote the book of Hebrews? God God only knows. Yeah. And and yet, it's because of the content of the book of Hebrews that we can say, well, was it, you know, uh, and I'm not even going to get into that, whoever it was, uh, we can receive it as inspired by God, not because we know for sure who the author was, but in one sense because it's self-attesting mm. uh, in terms of its in terms of its truthfulness, and that's what I would say in terms of the the anonymity of the Old Testament text is that they are self-attesting in terms of their truthfulness. The Spirit has spoken through them through long ages to the point where we don't have to doubt the spiritual author of the text, God Himself even if we don't know for sure who the human author is. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I, I, I do just want to point out as a footnote to this, a lot of sort of the, the white-knuckled grip on traditional authorship that some people have is in a response to and a pendulum swing of a lot of the challenges to, to traditional authorship that we saw in the 19th century uh, with the rise of higher criticism. So a lot of people say, well, if, if we don't hold on to this tightly, then we're on a slippery slope to denying inerrancy or an inspiration completely. At which point, again, even as we look at the historical evidence going all the way back to Bhava Bhathra or some of the disagreements in the early church and beyond, there there has always been a recognition of some of these features of the text that require some kind of explanation. There's been disagreement for 2,000 years as to who the author of some of these documents are, at which point I agree with Brian in theological triage or understanding how weighty is this or, or how, uh, how much of a difference does it make in our everyday life, to put it a different way. Well, again, not much. Why? Because we do have a very developed uh, sense of the inspiration of these documents. Yeah, that's well said. Um, the the phrase I like from the New Testament is "My sheep hear my voice." So when you talk about the attestation of Scripture, that you go, "I can hear the the voice of God." That's part of the justification for Hebrews. I think that applies to the Old Testament. I also, if there's any listener that's going like, "Oh my goodness, do we have the right books in the Old Testament?" Um, how I sleep very comfortably at night is to know that. Look, Jesus picked just about every religious fight he could with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like he took them down and on even would you go like eschatology? Well, he goes after him about that. He goes after him about uh, social customs, rights, theology. He just goes across the board. One fight he never picks is which books they had in their Bible uh, mm. or their Tanakh. 
right? And we know what that collection was. That's what we have today. And so that, uh, and different uh, scholars might give you different answers. That's where I kind of go, you know, I'm good. If Jesus didn't pick a fight about this, I'm not going <laughs> to lose too much sleep. Now, that's an assumption. That's not an argument. But uh, that's just my personal, uh, where I kind of end up on that. So, Tim, I, I want to kind of do a couple rapid fire questions here as we've got about maybe five to 10 minutes left. So sure. a couple quick things. All right. Yeah. So first, neither of us brought up Isaiah, and I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but if it was, <laughs> I'm going to step on that landmine. Isaiah is sometimes broken into two parts, sometimes broken up into three parts on the basis of stylistic and location grounds. Mm-hmm. What do you do with the authorship of Isaiah? Yeah, that's a good question. And for me, it's pretty easy. Like uh, the objections that are raised to Isaianic authorship of Isaiah, uh, as in Isaiah, son of Amos, right? The prophet of Jerusalem, Isaiah of Jerusalem. I I don't find really any of the arguments that Deutero-Isaiah or Trito-Isaiah is significantly stylistically different, uh, or the prophecies couldn't have taken place because X of N2 prophecy is impossible. I don't find any of those convincing personally. So I believe that Isaiah of okay. Jerusalem wrote uh, all of the book of Isaiah. And I think, uh, but I do think we can also uh, just just say that the prophets very clearly had other people who are involved to some degree in the writing and transcription process. Uh, yes. So you mentioned Baruch, right? Uh, in some cases, uh, in, in some cases, those scribes were uh, more involved than simple dictation. And that's something that, that uh, you know, we know from the New Testament as well, and there's a lot of kind of scholarly banter about this back and forth. Some people uh, kind of for their own comfort want to say, well, a scribe just simply dictated. But here's, here's at least a, a parallel, and this is going far afield from Isaiah, and I'll try and be brief. But you look at, say, the Pauline uh, literature. Okay, mm-hmm. well, the Pauline literature, some of them, it says, you know, I, Paul, say this to you or write this. But what about the letters that say Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy? Um, a lot of times we just totally gloss over that as though, well, yeah, you know, Silas and Timothy, they might have been involved. But this is really, you know, 99.99% pure Paul. Well, yeah. Why do we assume that has to be the case? Why don't we take it at face value that there was some level of community involvement uh, in in terms of this authorship? And we mentioned this again on the podcast with Mosaic Authorship, so I don't want to belabor it. But this is something that we we understand in various forms, like when people are writing speeches or or when they're you know authoring opinion pieces or other things. Uh, you have people who help you write. And so I think that actually can account for a lot of things, stylistic difference, vocabulary difference. You know, uh, if, if someone, maybe a scribe, suggests a particular word, I don't think that somehow negates inspiration and is really anything we need to be afraid of. So that was a longer answer. I'm sorry it wasn't rapid fire, but I don't find any problem with that. No, that's fine. Um, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, I'm I'll fully admit I'm not an Isianic scholar, uh, but the general argument for Deutero or Trinto, so second or third Isaiah, is on the basis of style, on the basis of content. Mm-hmm. Stylistic arguments I have never found terribly convincing. Uh, and mm-hmm. so let me acknowledge a naive assumption I had when I came into seminary. Tim, I just had the assumption because I'd never thought about it that 
authors sat down and wrote their books in like one sitting. Right, um, right. Having now had to write a book, I know how laughable that is. And uh, the text itself, right? This is written over the course of a man's life. You don't write the same way at same periods of life. I think you can have a vast arrangement of literary style, motifs, words, based on what you're trying to say. And so yeah. I don't want to discount if there's major stylistic differences. When I grade student papers, I can tell the differences between students in part because their styles are different. But yeah. at the same time, I look at my writing in college and it's nowhere near how I write now, right? We do change over time. By the mm-hmm. way, listeners, this is going to be just a fun little quick thing I'll plug. Uh, styled reasons is one of the arguments for multiple sources for the Pentateuch. And my favorite comeback to this and just proof that scholars are just as snarky as the rest of us. And we get really into the weeds when we do this. David Klein's. Tim, do you know about David Klein's article? I'm going to try to read it in German and I apologize. Go ahead. (laughs) No, you go for it, Brian. All right. So I Big apologies to all my German speakers out there, but his article is entitled Überlieferungs und uh, religio, uh, Religionsgeschichte Studen zum Pubach. I butchered that horribly, and I know I butchered it. Sorry. The title of his article is Further Directions in Pooh Studies, and that's not scatological. It is Winnie the Pooh. David Kleins is a genius. He published this in uh, JSOT Sup, wow. which is a, a very good academic journal. He takes all of the criteria that people argue this has to be a different source because of that and applies it to the work of uh, J.A. Milne, the, the writer of Winnie the Pooh. And it's a fully dead serious article. It's like 20 pages long. He starts talking about how honey has to be a fertility cult. And uh, (laughs) it goes on and on. And of course, as you're reading it, you're like, this is nonsense. It's a kid's book. It's a single author. But that's the point. We don't write like that. These things we dream up for ancient writers, that's not how it actually works. Stylistic grounds is a very poor reason to argue for different authorship. So um, you can find that, by the way, listeners. Google for further directions in Pooh, P-O-O-H. Remember the H? That's kind of important. Uh, Further Directions in Pooh Studies. You'll find it. It's linked on uniontheology.org. They have a copy of it for free there. Have a good laugh. It's good fun. So uh, I would agree with you, Isaiah, single Isaiah uh, by and large. I've not seen a convincing reason to abandon that position. I also don't think it is a uh, necessary position, but I I, I do adopt it. Um. Uh, one more rapid fire question for you, Tim, and then if you have any for me. Yeah. Solomonic authorship of Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. What say you? Man, uh, that one's more tough. Uh, and I'm going to pun on that. You know, when I think. <laughs> like, I, You're not I, allowed I, to punt. Uh, <laughs> You're still crying in baseball. I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Here's, here's what I, I and I, I said this and I'll just kind of repeat it. To mm-hmm. me, uh, I, I take into account. Uh, the weightiness of Christian tradition. So when you have patristic authorship or when you have Christian interpreters for a thousand years interpret something a certain way, he was just starting to say uh, I want to give that its due. Um, so how I tend to look at it is, okay, let's look at it through the lens of if it is Solomonic authorship. How could that potentially help us in our meditation of what the script- Scripture means? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the goal here is to interpret it correctly. So through the lens of Solomonic authorship, how does that change it? Uh, 
through the lens of, say, the authorship of Hezekiah. How does that change it? You know, I, I am, even when I think of especially Ecclesiastes, um, I look at that and say, man, there are some significant issues. Some people try to, again, iron those out by, well, he wrote this later in life, or he wrote this early in life before he kind of, you know, fell into his sin or whatever. Um, but uh, when it comes to those, uh, I take it as a meditation exercise more than I do uh, trying to weigh those arguments uh, completely. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm I am a uh, card carrying cynic, so I'm not unwilling to say we don't know, and that's okay. Yeah, no, I think that's fine. Um, as I said, I think it does change at least how I read it. I would have a problem with Song of Songs if Solomon is the author and the protagonist. Mm-hmm. That feels very. And maybe this is just a personal issue. That feels wrong. He is right. not the person I want to go get marriage advice from. Um, and Ecclesiastes, I think there is some interesting, we can do some interesting things with the story of the Bible if we go look. The first Messiah, and Solomon was viewed, right, as, hey, is this the actual Messiah? His horrible end and falling away from God, uh, the inability of wisdom to save you from sin. Um, I think there is some very interesting poetic justice and some literary themes if this is someone like Hezekiah reflecting on the lesson that the wisest man couldn't learn. Um, That I think does change my reading, but I fully agree. I don't think you have a convinced or I don't have a convincing argument, just uh, some data points that suggest something. So I'll let you punt on it. Uh, Final questions that you have for me, Tim, before we uh, sign off for the night. Yeah. So Brian, again, as I come back to this, I kind of like to mull over in my mind, okay, why is it that God did not see fit to make clear the authorship of these books? To me, uh, there could be some intentionality there. What say you? Great question. Um, I am open to that idea. I think you can see there is some evidence. God removes holy artifacts after they've served their purpose. So I'm thinking of the tent of meeting, the tabernacles destroy is lost. The Bible doesn't even talk about it, right? We just get the phrase "Go now to Shiloh, where my name once dwelt." Um, it's gone now. The tabernacle, something happened to it. Uh, Holy of Holies, uh, the the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but bronze thankfully, serpent. yeah, there the bronze serpent, right? Thankfully, uh, because of Indiana Jones, we know it's just locked in DC somewhere in a warehouse, mislabeled. <laughs> um, so I, I, I go. That does seem to be a pattern uh, for the reason I think you say. God doesn't want us to be venerating these things. A lesson the medieval church should have really paid attention to. Um, and, and so there's some logic there. I would also maybe point out, uh, or would ask because I actually don't know. I don't see authorship being a big issue in ancient Near Eastern writings, because uh, unless it's an edict of the king, the authority isn't being derived from the author. Mm-hmm. That is just kind of as a bemoan over my mind what I've come to. I need to do more work there. Um, but it could just be a cultural right implication of having writings that far back. The tradition matters more than the original author. So uh, I- I'm open to your review, though. I think it makes some good amount of sense. Yeah. Well, uh, Brian, as always, uh, this is thought provoking and it's helpful. And again, uh, just to, to kind of tie a bow on it to our listeners, here's what we want. We want to, in one sense, introduce you to some things, uh, before you get some bad ideas that kind of take 
take seed in your mind. So these are things that we can think about, in some cases disagree on, and yet we come back to the Word of God and say, this is the Word of God given by Him for us, for our lives. We want to build our words, our, our lives on it, and of course mm-hmm. we want it to be so ingrained in us uh, that we really do. We look to the Word of God to help us know God, love God, and then in turn love others with the God, the the love that God has shown us. So Dr. Brian, thank you for your time tonight. Listeners, thank you for all your questions. Uh, Without you, we don't have this program. It's just Dr. Brian and I talking to each other. So thank you for your engagement. Uh, We invite you to tune in next time. Uh, Follow us on on social media, Facebook. You can go to our YouTube page and find all kinds of episodes and and other cool stuff on there. So thank you. And uh, God bless you all. Thank you again so much for listening tonight. And as usual, You know what to do. Stay cool and stay old. God bless you all. Have a great night, everyone.